The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning. I, I really do hope you are doing well. Um, I want to invite you, if you have your Bible, to turn with me to Matthew 1 uh, this morning. And um, we are going to be, it's kind of a continuation in a lot of ways of where we began last week. And I'm really grateful to be in Matthew. This text is really, really good. Uh, I know I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to say that, but I mean it. It's really, really good. And um, last week we looked at verse 18. 118, and we talked about the coming of Jesus, the incarnation. We, we looked at several really important things, and we're going to pick up on some of those same things today. Uh, I promise that I'm not just going to re-preach last week. Uh, we'd be here all day, so we're going to build on it. If you missed it, I want to invite you. You can go back and, and, and take a listen, but we unpacked some really important things that were foundational. Um, for us. And last week we talked about the two natures of Jesus. Fully God, fully man. Bible tells us Jesus, one person, two natures. And we looked at that and, and we looked at his birth, his coming into humanity. And we talked about why the virgin birth is so foundational uh, to what we believe in Christ foundational to the gospel, um, that he was born of Mary, son of man, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, son of God, that the God-man Jesus Christ, this is our God, and we talked about why that matters last week. Um, and even though you've probably heard it a hundred times, um, the virgin birth, understanding that is so central to understanding who Jesus is. And so we looked last week, verse 18, that says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they came together and she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so last week we talked about this idea of betrothal and um, how it was a little bit, it's similar to what we think of with engagement like engaging to be married, only it's a little different because what we talked about last week is, is in the ancient biblical times, in Jewish customs, a betrothal was legally binding. And so we talked about this last week. It's not something you just broke off. Like I'm not feeling it anymore, breaking off, we're not getting married anymore. No, not in ancient times. Betrothal, you would need a certificate of divorce. This was a big deal, right, back then. And, and I say that, because our text today picks up on that. You're gonna feel it. In verse 19, look at our text. Verse 19 says, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So you might read that and think, well, hold up. They're not married. We're talking about divorce, they're not married, this is weird. And, and again, this is because this is ancient first century betrothal here, was legally binding. And as you look at this, I, I love the way Matthew identifies Joseph. If you look at this, he is a just man. 
Man, he's a good, he's a good dude. My translation. Righteous, he was, he was a good reputation, a, a faithful man of good character. And Joseph here assumes, play this out with me. She's pregnant. The baby's not mine. There's some assumptions that get made. Here, Mary must have been unfaithful to me. Must have been. And so if you look at this, though, even in the midst of that, I'll use the word betrayal, that stinks. Even in the midst of that, we see the heart of Joseph on display um, as he still cares for Mary and resolves to divorce her quietly. That's really cool. I mean, it really is. He, he wants to spare Mary from any shame that he didn't want to disgrace her publicly, and he could have, but he didn't want to do that. And um, he had every legal right, honestly, to be pretty nasty um, to Mary. I mean, in his eyes, this was adultery. And even in that, he didn't. He resolves to divorce her quietly, privately. And then in verse 20, um, we see Joseph still considering these things. Like, what should I do? This is not what I was expecting. Like, I had a vision for my life, and this is not it. It's not what I was expecting. What do I do? This is my betrothed wife here, the one to whom death do us part. She's now pregnant with a child that's not mine. What on earth do I do? This is not the way it was supposed to be. And in that moment of confusion, I use that word, darkness, uh, God speaks to Joseph in all of God's power, through a supernatural moment, the angel of the Lord speaks to Joseph in a dream, and this is an incredible moment. Verse 20 says this, but as he considered these things, yeah, I'd be considering these things as well. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, listen to this, first, the angel addresses Joseph. He says, he reminds him of his lineage. He addresses him as Joseph, son of David. I haven't forgotten who you are. Like, Joseph, son of David. He addresses Joseph and then gives Joseph this command. He says, Joseph, son of David. Then he says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. What? How could this be? The angel commands Joseph not only to not divorce her in a nasty way, but to go ahead, don't be afraid, marry her. It's awkward. Marry this girl who's pregnant with someone else's child. Marry this girl who looks like she's been unfaithful to me. The angel addresses Joseph, identifying him in the lineage of David, and then commands Joseph, hey, don't be afraid to marry this girl. Don't be afraid, don't be in fear to marry this girl. And then lastly, the angel then offers Joseph some really critical key inside information about the very important miracle that God had just done in the womb of Mary. It says, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
Joseph, in other words, is told what happened. The child is not a result of Mary's unfaithfulness to you. The child is not the result of Mary's unfaithfulness. No, no, no. The child is the result of God's faithfulness to you. I mean, just flip everything on its head in this moment here. Sending Jesus, the Messiah, to save you. This is not Mary's unfaithfulness. This is God's faithfulness on display here. And Joseph is, he believes. He believes. And Matthew, I love this. I want to pull this out here. He's telling us so much here about who Jesus is. I want to pull out three. One, Jesus is the son of God. We talked about this last week, meaning he was conceived not by Joseph, not by any man, but conceived by the Holy Spirit, conceived of God, the son of God. Number one. Number two, Jesus is the son of man, meaning born of Mary, flesh and blood, the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. This is baby born in a manger. So son of God, son of man, fully God, fully man. And then three, don't miss this because he says something again. Matthew is also saying Jesus is the son of David. We started looking at this when we looked at the genealogy, but under Joseph, his adopted dad, the child Jesus would legally be Joseph's son because of that legally son of David. Matthew's making a point here. Identifying who this Jesus is. Joseph, son of David, don't you fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is incredible. And, and it leads us to the verse, okay, that we're going to settle on together today. Verse 21. Uh, this is a verse that we could spend weeks unpacking. Honestly, when, I, when we decided and prayed, like, Matthew's it. We're going to be in Matthew I have been excited about this verse. Uh, Verse 21 says this. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And church is beautiful on a lot of levels. I don't want us to miss this. First of all. She, that is Mary, is going to bear a son, give birth to a baby boy, a baby. Um, we just had a baby. And I'm a really proud dad. So anytime I get a chance to you know, drop that information, I do. No, um, but we just had a baby. This is fresh on my mind here. Uh, I say we. My wife just had a baby, and I was cheering her on. Um, surprise, beautiful baby girl, three months old now. She's awesome. And yet... I am reminded constantly how vulnerable babies are. Like, babies lack the strength to survive on their own. They can't hold up their head. Their heads are huge. And their arms, they go to their ears, right? And, and they, it's like a bobblehead. They can't hold it up and they can't feed themselves. Babies can't defend themselves or provide for themselves. It's a baby... And here we have the savior of the world, a helpless baby. Anyone who is a parent, I want to pull one more thing out on this. I think you'll be able to relate to the moment. I've been thinking about this a lot this week. Um, It just shows where my mind goes. But you know that feeling, especially after your first kid, 
when you're at the hospital, you just have your first baby, and that moment comes when you get to leave. Every parent knows how terrifying that moment is. When you think you're putting the baby in the car seat for the first time and putting the car seat in your car for the first time, and you're thinking like, how on earth are they letting us leave? We don't know what we're doing. Maybe it was just me, but I was like, I'm terrified right now. Like, they should make me do a class or something before I leave with this baby who's now in my control, my responsibility. Okay, I was thinking about all that, and I thought, I can't imagine the weight that Mary and Joseph would be feeling. You talk about anxiety here. Savior of the world in my hands. Messiah in my hands. Mary and Joseph entrusted with Jesus, the helpless babe, as the song says that we sing in Christ alone. It says, in Christ alone who took on flesh the fullness of God and helpless babe. Mary and Joseph entrusted here. It's just, wow. And, and this is Jesus. And I want to dig more. It says, she will bear a son. And then it says, you're, you're going to call his name Jesus. And the Lord, what the, the angel of the Lord names or reveals the name. Um, Jesus was a very, it was a common name back then. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew name Yeshua, closely associated with the English word Joshua, all right? So it's, it's fairly common. And what it means is Yahweh is salvation or the Lord saves. That's what this name, call his name Jesus. That's what it means. And I know um, for most of us today, we name our kids names that we like, that sound cool. Um, very few of us get into the weeds on like, what a name signifies, what it said. Maybe you do, you're more spiritual than me. We picked a name because we liked it. And, um, but here's the thing, in this context in scripture, you gotta understand, naming is powerful. Naming was meaningful. This is why you see so many in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they have this encounter with God and then what happens? They get their name changed. You, you see Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. Um, you see Jacob to Israel, Saul to Paul. You, you see a switch and names are meaningful. And here the angel of the Lord says, this miracle child will have a name. I'm gonna take away the burden that you have as a mom and dad about naming the Messiah. I'm gonna give you that name. And his name shall be called the Lord saves. God is salvation. Amen. It says for or because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Call his name the Lord saves because that's what he's going to do. And this is so incredible. And this is where it gets maybe a little unexpected. As we think about this, um, I think it's important for us to try the best that we can to put ourselves in the shoes of the Jewish people and what they were expecting. What were they looking for? What salvation were they looking for? They were looking for salvation, but not like this. And they, 
they had endured so much, experienced so much, they were defeated and conquered and scattered and they were sent off in captivity. And in the midst of all of that, they were given through the prophets um, this promise that, hey, a Messiah's coming. Salvation is coming. And, and someone's coming who's gonna make all of this right. And they were looking to that and waiting for that, this Messiah who would come and conquer and rule and reign and... Uh, they were waiting. They were waiting for the enemies to get defeated. They were waiting for someone to sit on the throne of David like a boss in power and in splendor. They were waiting for the Messiah King to come. That's what they were waiting for. And they were standing on the promises that they were holding, looking for that. They were looking for salvation, only they were looking for a physical liberation or salvation. They were looking to be saved from real physical enemies of Israel in their particular time. In other words, if you were to think about this, it's almost like they were reading this verse maybe a little bit differently, where instead of it saying, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from, they were reading it more of their enemies, their oppressors, um, from humiliation, from persecution. This is what they were looking for, and yet that's not what this verse says. This verse says, for he will save his people from their sins. In the minds of the people, this was unexpected because, I mean, they had a priest for that. We got the sin thing taken care of. It's not our sins, God, that are the problem. It's theirs. Will you come deal with their sins? Will you come deal with their wickedness? Save us from them. But the angel says, no. First understand the Messiah is coming to save you from your sin. This is not what they were looking for. This is a spiritual salvation, removing the separation from themselves and God that was caused by their sin. I want to repeat something that we saw last week. Um, last week, we talked about how important it is for us to have a right view, a correct view of sin. How important it is um, and how dangerous it is for us to downplay sin. And, and in other words, church, the most loving thing that I can tell you as a preacher is that you're not just a little sinful. Like, you're not just, you're a good person who occasionally makes a whoopsie. That's not you. Church, you're a sinner, a full-blown one. Don't downplay it or make light of it because to downplay it, to make light of your sin is to downplay and make light your Savior. Don't do it. In fact, I, I will show this again. I mentioned last week I had an incredibly quirky professor in seminary who... Um, marked me, some would say scarred me, but what he did is he would stare off into the middle distance for a while and then look you straight in the eyes and pound his pulpit or the door frame and, and um, he would say, listen, you are thrice condemned and he would yell it. That's why it stuck with me. Um, and if you're here last week, I'm not gonna go into depth into each one of these um, again, but I wanna bring this out because we pick up right here in our text today. So 
you are thrice condemned. And what he meant is he said, first, you are a sinner by imputation, meaning you're a sinner in Adam. For any accountant in the room, we love you, um, but it's like you were born with a negative in your bank account that you could not pay. You were given it. You're a sinner in Adam. Sin imputed to you from Adam, just as righteousness is imputed to you from Christ. Sin was imputed to you through Adam. Sinner by imputation. Number two, you are a sinner by nature, which means you have this bend towards sin. You want to sin. You have a sin nature that gets passed down from one generation to the next. You're drawn to it. You are naturally sinful. It's like your default condition is broken right out of the box. Sin nature. So sinner by imputation, sinner by nature. Don't forget that third, sinner by choice. Meaning you and I and every person in this room and every person not in this room who happens to ever have been choose to sin by what they do, by what they leave undone. We choose to sin. Sinners by choice. There is no one righteous, no, not one. So you're thrice condemned, as he would say. And, and when you consider the holiness and perfection of God, any one of those three things would rightly condemn you. But you don't have just one. Say it with my professor. You are thrice condemned. We have all three. You're a sinner. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of that sin. Your sin is death. That is your condition. That is your sin. That is your condemnation. That is your helpless state. And it's the reason why you can't save yourself. And it's the reason why you can't even make yourself a little more savable than someone else. Like, it's really bad. Thrice condemned. Thrice condemned. Not a little sinner... Not generally a good person who makes a little whoop-whoop here and there. A sinner. You don't need help. You don't need just a good example or a little encouragement to be your best. You don't need a little helpful nudge or push. You're a sinner and you need a savior. The people of Israel were expecting a physical liberation. And what God was offering to them is something far deeper and greater In Christ, God was offering to them spiritual liberation, freedom from sin, salvation from sin. And and here's why I bring that up. Because if you look at verse 21, she she will bear a son. You're going to call his name Jesus. And he will save his people from their sin. When you understand your sin, the reality of it, you're able to understand the power of that single statement in our verse. You're able to understand the power of Jesus Christ as our Savior when we understand what we are being saved from. And so this morning, I want us to settle on this for a little bit because just as you're thrice condemned, and just as we understand the 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 power and seriousness of our sin. This morning, we get to look at the power of God for salvation and the power of our Savior to save us from our sin. Here's the question we asked last week together. Why does the virgin birth matter? That's what we looked at last week. 
Why does it matter that Jesus is fully God, fully man? Why does it matter he came to the earth this way, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? Why does that matter? This morning, um, the question for us is this. What does it mean that he saves his people from sin? What does that mean, church, that Jesus saves you from your sin? Not in some vague, theoretical way, but what does it mean in your life today? Do you know your Savior Jesus, and do you know what your Savior Jesus saved you from? These are the questions we're going to be unpacking today. And they're so important. I mentioned this again. I'll say it. Don't downplay sin because you'll downplay your Savior inadvertently. Don't do it. Don't do it. Jesus Christ came, not that you can downplay your sin, but Jesus Christ came to save you from your sin. And to do this, um, I'm going to deal with, we're going to talk about this using three Ps. Because all pastors alliterate, and that's just what we do, right? Um, um, three Ps. And, and I want to, just like last week, I want to make one encouragement before I give this. Uh, listen, no matter who you are, um, we hear this in all Christianity, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And, and, and it sounds so elementary that we would say this. And so what could happen is you could hear this all the time, just like we did with the virgin birth. You hear it all the time and you stop thinking about what you're actually believing and saying. So this morning, here's my encouragement. You may be here and you may have heard this. You know Jesus saves, but you may never have considered the power and implications of this. And so here's what I want to encourage you. No matter who you are, where you come from, your background, no matter if you're young in the faith, not young in the faith, mature in the faith, um, let's settle in on this. Let's take this. Let's not rush, okay? Let's look at this. We're going to start again, three Ps. We'll start with the first one. Jesus saves his people from sins, first P, penalty. For all have sinned, and the wages of that sin is death. That's a penalty. There is a consequence for your sin, and you're thrice condemned. The consequence is death and separation from your God and eternal godless existence. This is what Scripture says the penalty of your sin is. And no matter who you are, you, apart from Christ, are under that penalty of your sin. I want to read uh, Isaiah 59. 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a what? A separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Separation. Romans 3.23, For the wages of sin is death. We have separation, we have death. This is condemnation apart from Jesus. That is your reality. Most of the time, what I've realized is when we talk about salvation in the church, as the church, we're talking about salvation from this. When we say Jesus saves, this is typically what we're thinking about, salvation from the penalty of sin, you being saved from death, hell, and the grave, being forgiven, you know, no more condemnation. In other words, you were thrice condemned, right? Thrice condemned, and here's the good news. Through the work and power of Jesus, Romans 8, 1 now says, therefore is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, you were thrice condemned, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. You have been saved from sin's penalty. 
So your sin, your guilt, your shame placed on Jesus who took all of it, not some of it, all of it. He took the penalty of your sin on himself on the cross so that now you no longer bear it. Um, It's like that third verse of it is well, that old hymn that I love. Do you remember the third verse? My favorite one of them says, oh, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Jesus saves his people from sin's penalty. Often in the church, we use a word for this, justification, which means we are declared just by the work of Jesus, and it is done. It is finished on the cross, just as if we have never sinned. That's how we think. This is justification. You are saved from the penalty of sin through Jesus. I want to say one more thing here before I move on. Don't believe the lie. If you are in Jesus, do not believe the lie that you are still under the penalty for your sin. Now, you may live under some of the consequences of your sin. That's very real. But in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. You are free from the penalty of sin in Christ Jesus, who accomplished it all and said, it is finished. If you're in Christ, you are thrice condemned no longer. You are free. You are forgiven. You are saved. Here's the thing, though. That's not all. It gets better than that. You're saved. Jesus saves his people from sin's penalty. Number two, Jesus saves his people from sin's power. What do I mean by this? Um, Ephesians 2 speaks to this just a little bit. I want to bring this out. I'll put it up here. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's really dire. And do you hear the power of sin in those three simple verses? Ephesians says, you're dead. Apart from Jesus, you're dead. Not a little dead, dead. Says that we're under the power of the enemy. Says we're under the power of the passion of our flesh. It says we're under the power of the desires of our body and minds. Listen, sin is not light. Sin is not flippant. Sin is heavy. It is powerful. And listen, I, I, I've, I've heard this before, and in so many ways, this is so wonderfully true. Um, I've heard people who have shared their testimony, and they make a statement, and, and they say, look, before coming to Jesus, I never struggled with sin. I never struggled with lust. I never struggled with slander or anger. I never struggled with materialism. I never struggled with sin before Jesus. I didn't struggle. I just did it. 
It wasn't until after I came to faith in Jesus that I began the battle. It wasn't until after that I began to fight and wage war against sin. Before Jesus, I was in sin. Now, after Jesus, I am in Christ. And everyone in Christ knows, now, church, we battle. We wage war. It's not with flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual war. We battle temptation. We battle sin. Looking at Ephesians, we battle not to live any longer in the passions and desires of the flesh. We, we battle to no longer live under the demands of the enemy. We fight. And if you know Jesus, ultimately, you know there is forgiveness of sin. But you got to know you have also been saved, not only from the penalty of sin, but what about the power of sin in your life? Um, are we to say, this is rhetorical, so don't answer wrong here, okay? Are we to say, ah, who cares? Like, I'm forgiven. I'll see Jesus one day up there. I'm good. I'm forgiven. I'm saved. So who cares? Fortunately, Paul asked that same question. In Romans 6, 1, he says, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And I envision Paul yelling that, by the way. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What is he saying here? What he's saying is Jesus not only just saved us from the penalty of sin, but Jesus is saving us from the power of sin in our lives. We battle sin, and Christ is the power over that sin. Now, I want to I be clear here. Do you battle perfectly? That's also rhetorical. <laughs> no, we do not battle perfectly. One of the marks, in other words, of, of our salvation in Jesus, it's not perfectionism. Anyone who says that in Jesus they got it all figured out, they're a liar. It's not perfectionism. One of the marks of salvation in Christ is not perfectionism. It's actually brokenness over sin. It's confession of sin. It's repentance from sin. In other words, one of the marks of our salvation is actually battling sin. Not pretending it doesn't exist. I'm holy now. No. We battle. One of the marks of salvation in Christ is the battle we fight against sin in our lives today as we put it to death. And as we battle, it's not just that we battle, it's we battle understanding that we battle sin in victory, ultimately. We stand um, not under this power of sin. Think about it like this. Jesus not only saved you, that's past tense, from sin's penalty. But Jesus is now also saving you, this is now and present, from sin's power. One of the words we often use for this is sanctification, being sanctified. It's the work that Jesus is doing through his spirit in our lives, making us more like Jesus and saving us from the power of sin so that we can walk in Christ. Don't believe the lie, church, that you're powerless. Don't believe the lie that you're hopeless to overcome because just as you trust Jesus to save you from the penalty of your sin, Sorry about that. Wow. Am I back? All right. 
Just as God saved you from the penalty of your sin, we can now trust him to save us from the power of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation in those in Christ. So Jesus saves us from sin's penalty. Jesus saves us from sin's power. One more, because one day we're gonna come to know one more P, and that is Jesus saves his people from sin's presence. Um, now, what does that mean? And what it means is that one day, sin will be no more. It means that one day, we will experience what life is like apart from sin. No more pain, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more striving, no more death. We long for shalom. And one day, the beauty and peace that we read about in the garden, we will know. We will experience When the kingdom is established, in other words, the very presence of sin is no more. I mean, I don't know about you. I mean, can you even imagine it? There's no penalty, no shame, no guilt, because there's no more sin. Like, there's no more power, and there's no more battle, and there's no more struggle, and there's no more striving. Why? Because there's no more sin. Jesus not only saved you, past tense, from sin's penalty. He's not only saving you, present tense, from sin's power, but Jesus is saving, he will save you, that's future tense, from sin's very presence. This is huge. This is what we often refer to as glorification. It's, it's the victory that is in ours, in Jesus, that we will one day resurrect like Jesus, in Jesus, and Christ will save us from the very presence of sin forever and ever. Colossians speaks to this, and Colossians 3 says, if then we have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of this earth, for you died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then listen to this. When Christ, who is in your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is glorification. When sin is no more, and we are with him. So I want you to take this in. She's gonna bear a son, and you're gonna call his name Jesus for this baby is going to save his people from their sins. That church is no small statement. This is our salvation. Salvation from sin. That is its penalty, its power, and its presence. That is salvation from sin. Past, present, future. This is salvation from sin. That is, that is our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. This is huge. This is our salvation in Jesus. All here in one statement. This is our salvation in Christ. He will save his people from their sins. And this brings us to one last thing. I flew by this one, and I, I can't fly by it. One last thing. Who does Jesus save? Well, in this, he says, his people. In the time of Matthew, this undoubtedly would have been the assumption that this was a reference to ethnic Israel only. But here's the thing. 
through Scripture. One of the most incredible wonders in all of Scripture is that in the sovereign plan of God, that the plan from the beginning was to reconcile creation to himself through Jesus Christ. His, from the beginning, Old Testament included, his heart was for the nations. How do I know this? Well, a lot of places, but one of my favorite places to just imagine is how it all comes together in the end. When people from every tribe and tongue are gathered around, I gotta read it. Roman, or Revelation 7 says, after this I looked and behold a great number that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes, all the peoples, languages, standing before the throne, before the lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And, and I, listen to this. This is cool. Crying out with one loud voice. What are they crying out? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the, front, the throne and to the lamb. So who are his people? His people are the ones who are in Christ, who have been saved by grace through faith from people from all tribes and nations and tongues who have been saved and proclaiming this, that salvation belongs to our God. His people are all those who have responded in faith. His people are all those who believe with their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. These are his people, those adopted into his family who cry out salvation belongs to the Lord. These are his people. We are his people. So here's the final question this morning. Are you a part of his people? Do you know the salvation of Christ? Do you know, do you trust him as your savior? Because hear me, your sin is horrific and huge. You are thrice condemned. You have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that is death, but God. Ephesians 2, 4, and 9 says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Church, your sin is great, but Christ is greater. Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Do you know him and do you trust him? Are you a part of his people? Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, saved from your sin. From the penalty, the power, and one day the presence. Past, present, future. Justified, sanctified, one day glorified. Do you trust Christ? Listen, if you're here and you would say no, or I don't know, I pray and I have been praying that today is the day 
that you come to know and trust Christ, that you confess your sin, repent, and trust Christ. I pray that today is the day of salvation. And if you're here and you would say yes, um, I pray that this morning is a time when your faith is strengthened, when your confidence in the work of Christ is strengthened. I pray that you're able to leave this place this morning knowing even more that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Amen?